welcome to Free Your Inner Guru, the podcast for discerning seekers where we have all of the community and none of the cult. I'm your host, Laura Tucker. If you're a fan of the show and want to join the conversation, you can subscribe to the Free Your Inner Guru Patreon page. Your subscription includes access to our discourse community, live monthly Zooms, and some pretty cool merchandise. Your Patreon subscription helps keep the show going free of ads and supports me as an independent researcher and creator, for which I am very grateful. I'd love it if you would take a moment to go to patreon.com forward slash free your inner guru and subscribe to support the show. Welcome to episode 93 of Free Your Inner Guru. We're doing something a little different this episode. It's a podcast swap with Steve McCready. He's our host, and I'm the one at the guest microphone this time. Steve McCready is the host of the Sensitive Rebel podcast. He is here to interview me about life before, since, and the lessons I've learned from my involvement in the self-help industry and what is coming to be known as That Sweat Lodge. Over on the Sensitive Rebel, you will find an episode called Laura Tucker Helps Steve Free His Inner Guru, which was also released today. A couple of things before we jump in. First of all, I want to thank Aaron and Felicia who became Patreon supporters over the weekend. The notifications came in as I was driving through the back roads of Southern Ontario taking photos of the autumn colors. It was quite a moment to be doing one thing I love while support for another thing that I love came in. I was very grateful and uh, and, I'm grateful for everyone's support. A quick update and preview from the last episode with Lisa and Jarette of igotout.org. First of all, thank you for all of the positive feedback. Please do remember to share it on social media as well as to leave a review. Since recording that conversation, I've written my own I Got Out statement. Keep your eyes open on their social media and mine, particularly Instagram, for when it drops. As you may be aware, I've been reclaiming my life throughout this past year. For me, that means winding down my coaching practice and returning to outdoor photography, writing, and taking this podcast into new territory. That's one of the reasons that we've been exploring cult dynamics and indoctrination with a focus on the self-help industry. Steve is the perfect host for this conversation. He is a coach, and his background is as a psychotherapist. We share many interests, including psychology, creativity, podcasting, and photography. After a couple of Zooms geeking out on art and gear, we had a what-if conversation about interviewing each other. To switch things up, we decided to be guests on our own shows. The timing is serendipitous. The 12th anniversary of the Sedona Sweat Lodge was October the 8th, just a few days ago. A dozen years later, I'm still peeling back layers of this experience and sharing them, but mostly on other podcasts and other platforms. Steve's background as a therapist enables him to hone in on the challenging topics with empathy. He speaks with authority to their impact on psychology and mental health, making him the perfect host for this conversation. And no joke, by the time we finished, I was tempted to title this episode with someone please just give me a red flag. So on that note, here's Spot the Red Flags, a conversation with Steve McCready. All right. So today on the Free Your Inner Guru podcast, we've got a little bit of a backwards situation because obviously I'm not Laura Tucker. 
I'm Steve McCready, the host of the Sensitive Rebel podcast, and I will be talking to our guest today who is, oh, that's where Laura is. Hi, Laura. How are you? Hi, Steve. I'm great. How are you today? I'm doing good. This is fun. So this is for listeners, part two of a little fun thing that we're doing. Laura last week interviewed me for my podcast, and here I am interviewing her for hers. Uh, and we'll have links going crossways. Everyone can listen to both. But um, even though we are here on uh, Laura's podcast today, I'm still going to start with my opening question. Wait a sec, Steve. Wait a sec. I forgot something. I have to say something. Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru, Steve. I didn't welcome you properly to my podcast. So I'm your guest, Laura Tucker, and I'm very happy to have you here. <laughs> Thank you for correcting that. It's good to be here and I appreciate you um, being willing to play along on our little adventure here. Hopefully it'll be as much fun for everyone else as it has been for us. Yeah. So what were you going to ask me before I cut you off with my usual intro? So my question that I want to start with here is uh, for you, Laura, what are you rebelling against? Oh gosh, that sounds so much like a, a question that you would ask on your podcast. Um, Funny that. Yeah. So I'm rebelling against, I think the bottom line is I'm rebelling against injustice. That's a big word to say. It's broad, but um, boiling it down more and more increasingly, I am rebelling against the status quo. And maybe that is actually more it. Rebelling against the injustice of the status quo with a particular focus on the self-help industry, but not exclusive to that which is how we get talking about things like cult dynamics and toxic leaders and problems we're having in society today. It was the reason for creating the podcast in 2017, but it seems like the moment for this topic has come. And, and so there's more energy around it and, and more audience for it as a result, which is rewarding. And I'm just so grateful to anyone that, that comes to listen to what's going on over here. I'm going to go back in a bit here to the path that led you to creating the podcast and why you chose to do this and why you're on this particular mission. But I want to dig in a little bit more to something you were just talking about, the, the current environment and how that's you know, conducive to this. Uh, what do you mean by that? So the last few years have been in one form or another, a version of me reliving the dynamics that played out in the Sedona Sweat Lodge in 2009. And while there's zero direct correlation between that event and what is happening in society today, what happened was early on in the Trump presidency, when those of us who have had experience with, some would say narcissistic leadership experiences, were very triggered by the rise of Trump into the presidency. If you went back in the catalog, you would see episodes with titles like conscious leadership is needed right now and the need for authentic leadership. And I was looking at everything through the leadership frame, not just because I was a leadership coach at the time, but also because these were specific problems of leadership. So that's a bit of a backdrop halfway between then being 2009 and now. And then more recently in the throughout the course of the pandemic, there were some initial circumstances that were very familiar to me right out of the gate in March 2020. And the first was the divide in society. So a split or a fracture in the community. And early on, it wasn't around the current issues of anti-vax or anti-mask or pro-vaccination or pro-masking, pro-lockdown, anti-lockdown. You know, 
it was actually in my mind, I was seeing it where people were losing their businesses, especially where here, where I'm living in Ontario, which is like the most locked down um, region in all of North America throughout the, the pandemic. So the people who are around me, who are primarily business owners and small business owners themselves, doctors and nurses and healthcare workers were being called to do their their role and their duty and, you know, their service to others, we were being sat at home. And so I identified that and responded pretty quickly because it was something that I saw and it was unfortunate, but it didn't really trigger me the same way that the polarization in the health and wellness and by proxy, the, the self-help industry. Because if we were to put a Venn diagram or down between the self-help industry and the wellness industry, there would be a large area of overlap. That's my burning issue at the moment that's keeping me going. I'm sure that regular listeners of your podcast know a lot of your background. They probably know a lot of the details about what happened with the the sweat lodge and James Arthur Ray in 2009 in Sedona. But I want to learn more about what led up to that and your journey leading up to that, that puts you there in that space at that time. And then how you've gone since, because I know there's been a lot of twists and turns <laughs> to your journey. And I think they'll be very interesting to explore. So this actually is an opportune time for me to give you some recognition for why I thought it would be okay to do this with you because you're, you're a coach, but also you're a, a licensed psychotherapist. So you are well-versed in aspects of mental health and trauma. So I want to express gratitude for that. It makes you, I think, more, maybe more tools in your toolbox than the average interviewer for taking on these types of topics. So that being said, when on my, what I'll call my self-help journey, it was not too long after I moved from Toronto, where I was born and raised and lived like the first 37 or 38 years of my life. I'd moved to Kelowna, British Columbia. And the big impetus behind that was my desire to be in the mountains and have more of an outdoor lifestyle. I had identified that as being critical to my, my mental health but also my creative health. The years prior to my relocation, I had invested very heavily in what was at the time a hobby of photography. So, and I had traveled to workshops. I could have put down a down payment on a house with the money I put into cameras and lenses and schooling and everything else. And it really had awakened this joy in me. And I knew it was very important. So I reoriented my life around having that accessible to me. And then on the business front, I was consulting in the automotive industry. So I was able to successfully relocate based on a couple of trips to go out there and um, drum up some business. And, and there I did this thing that a lot of people thought was very daring or courageous. In 2005, I relocated me and my dog. So single woman, dog, and away we go. And a whole lot of camera gear, apparently. And, uh, yes. Yeah. The camera gear was with me in my CRV and the dog and um, almost everything else was in a very small sliver of a very large moving truck. I want to, if I, so, can I ask a little oh, bit sure. more about, about that? Because the career piece, I want to explore some too, but I'm, I'm real curious about the, the creative aspect of this. Because what I'm hearing, I mean, obviously for you to decide, all right, I'm going to take and move away from this place that I've lived my, my whole life, number one. But two, a very different 
sort of environment. And I'm going to go do this. Largely, it sounds like because it gives me a chance to do this thing and to live this lifestyle more fully, to be able to do more of this creative work. I'm interested in understanding more about what spoke to you so much about it. What did you find in experience doing it that caused it to have this sort of pull and draw for you? I grew up around photography. My father was an avid amateur photographer and he took very beautiful pictures, mostly of people. We were his subject matter. And what happened, this is like going way back now, but when I was in between my degree in education and actually working as a teacher, so now we're like early 90s, I had gone for a trip with a friend to Eastern Canada and uh, Eastern Canada, the maritime provinces are incredibly beautiful. And it's a drivable distance from Toronto in, say, a couple of days. And I fell in love with it. And we were coming home back into traffic, back into looking at taillights. And I was in the car and I could just feel myself just slump. And I wouldn't have had the words for just my, like this energetic shift in me or emotional shift. And I said something to my friend. I was like, I don't think I want to be home. And she brushed me off and said, oh, everyone feels that way after a vacation. So, you know, you go home and then, and I, I got my film from my point and shoot camera processed and I picked it up and went through them all and blew up my couple of favorite shots and hung them in the office. And then I had this opportunity that never worked out because the relationship didn't last, but there was talk of going between me and a boyfriend going to visit Alaska. So I was like, holy smokes, I'm going to Alaska. I better get a better camera. And so I went and I bought my first film SLR camera, which is the kind where you have detachable lenses for non-photo buffs. And I bought a photography how-to giant book and devoured that thing like it was a best-selling novel. One thing led to another, and then I ended up in a camera club. And from there, so I'm just following the thread. That's what I do. I just follow the inspiration. And so at this camera club, they were always talking about this photographer out in the eastern provinces of Canada, the Maritimes, in New Brunswick. And his name is Freeman Patterson, and he was doing these workshops. And the way they all spoke about him there, I was like, well, I'm going to see about going to learn from Freeman Patterson. So I've now been to Freeman Patterson workshops four times over the last you know 20 plus years. And when I went to that initial workshop, the validation that I got, not just as for the quality of the photos, but there was something very human and fulfilling that I wasn't experiencing in my other work. And that was like when it came time to decide, Eastern Canada wasn't as viable economically. And then through business, I had a trip to British Columbia. And once I saw and was in the mountains, that was it. I was done. Tell me for you, when you're out shooting and looking for things to photograph, what sort of feelings does that bring up for you? Like, I'll start by saying that often the, the shot, although this has changed over time, but in the early days, I was a very harsh critic of anything that I did. And I would have these preconceived notions about what the image should be based on the principles that I was learning. And it was very structured. And there's a ton of value in that because all of those things now are just, they are unconscious to me now. When I frame up a shot, they're happening. 
but what I'm looking for is the feeling. If I had started out at the gate looking for the feeling and not knowing about the underlying principles, I'm sure I would have got there eventually, but it would have been, I think, a, a much windier path. So the feeling for me, what I'm doing, what photography is very much as distinct from taking a snapshot or a shot for a overtly business purpose. The feeling for me, and I've studied this feeling a little bit, it's, it, it facilitates a flow state for me. And what I try to do when I have the time and space is to make sure that when I'm out with my camera, that I'm not 100% eyeball up to the viewfinder, that I'm also taking the time in nature. Because now all these years later, it's very common knowledge that nature has healing properties, meditative properties and grounding properties. And so I think I was experiencing all that in the early days without having the language to identify what they were. Sounds very much like so many creative endeavors where like at first you've got to learn the rules and then once you're going to learn them, then you can start to ignore them because they're either unconscious or they're there, but they, they provide an initial framework to understand how to go about being creative, but ultimately letting go of them is really, I think, fundamental to being able to do our best creative work. And it sounds like that's what you've experienced with photography. Totally. And it's like under, I think an artist would probably describe it as understanding your medium. Yeah, definitely. I think that's definitely true. Um, in my own work in art and painting, like every medium is very different and how you can paint and work with that is very different. If you try and do the same thing, even acrylic versus oil paint, like you try and do the same thing with both of them and you get very different results because they behave differently. Um, and then in photography, of course, that can be true, different, either different camera formats, different lens, focal lengths and such. So it's in interesting um, space where you can really, really play around. But what I'm hearing here is that for you, this really connected you to nature into the world in a way that it sounds like being in the more urban environment simply was not doing for you. Here's the kicker. I really, I love Toronto. I love Vancouver. I love going to New York. I've been to London twice and can't wait to get back. I think I'm, my, my preference is for the extremes, either the middle of the city or the middle of nowhere. That is where I'm happiest though with the camera in my hand and in the middle of nature. But I enjoy a city life from a practical standpoint, although I wouldn't rule out living in the middle of nature at some stage, that's for sure. Well, it gives you more options at least. And there are more options now than there were, like going back to the source of my story, way more options now for living remotely and doing something of, of value and service in the, in the world that isn't tied to literally the, the land or, or the distance. And so let's come back to the work piece a little bit. So you, you know, have this opportunity to head west, which apparently is a thing in Canada, just like it was here in the U.S. <laughs> totally. So tell me a little bit about the career piece of this and how that proceeded for you. It should just to frame it around the photography a little bit in that first trip that I described. That was just at the beginning of my very short career as a, a teacher in uh, public school. And so that was truncated because of the labor conditions and the economy local to me. And that was actually my heartbreak over not being able to sustain myself approaching the age of 30 at the time and not and have, you know, having gone to school and all of that. When I graduated out into teaching, it was just in the middle of constant strikes, constant work to rules, all the things that as an idealistic teacher, I didn't sign up for. and 
I, my mental health really struggled in those years. And so that is what precipitated me leaving in 97 and going into corporate life. So in corporate life, I made the transition from teacher to a trainer role in the company that I worked for. And from there, after a couple of years, I saw that I could potentially have more impact in the sales department. So I shifted from training to sales. And then ultimately my own consulting business came right out of my selling experience where I was selling a lot of things to my clients. They weren't necessarily getting implemented well. And I, by that time, I really understood the business that I was in, which was the automotive industry. And so I was able to cobble together some best practices and, and really rely on my teaching skills to not just design the processes and consult to the owners, but to implement, train and oversee the change until it was well-rooted. So that's what I was doing, bringing us up to to that, my move from Toronto to Kelowna, which is a small city relative to, say, Toronto and Vancouver. Kelowna at the time would have had maybe 80,000 people in it, the surrounding area. There's a couple of other cities, so maybe 100,000, 120,000 spread out along this gorgeous Okanagan Lake, which runs north-south between two mountain ranges. And just picture like heaven, vineyards, mountains, swimming, skiing lifestyle. It really is a fabulous place. And a lot of it is on fire at the moment, but it is a fabulous place. And I went out there for what could be called a dirty weekend. And when I saw Kelowna and I was like, holy smokes, and went driving south through the valley there and saw that there's actually a desert. And it was reminding me of Arizona. And I didn't know you could have an arid climate in Canada. So I was hooked. That's what led me to being out there. But at that point, I had my consulting business, which I had for like 12 years that went right into the Great Recession. And when the recession hit, all of a sudden work that had been relatively easy became a lot more difficult because the environment had shifted and business, this the floor, I think we can all relate to this again, which is why I think sometimes I have a bit of foresight on some of the conditions that are here now and coming, but the the sales dropped out in, it was slow though, not like the pandemic, which is like overnight. It was a slow decline. And while we didn't go down as hard and fast as the States did, we definitely, it was a global recession and we followed suit with a, a shallower bottom. So it was then when it's, holy smokes, everything is hard. And a friend of mine gave me a copy of the DVD, The Secret, when I was just pushing up against some challenges in my personal life. And I never lost income during that. That was the irony. I ne personally, I didn't struggle because my work was needed more than ever. But the work itself was just, it was a lot more work and energy to sustain people in there and keeping their livelihoods. That's the one thing that led to another for me to hop on a plane and go to a, a workshop down in the States with uh, James Arthur Ray. So let me ask you a little bit about your initial exposure to The Secret. I'm curious both at the time, how it landed with you and how maybe now today, looking back, how your view of it and what it is has shifted. This isn't a cop out. You and I discussed this piece, but for excruciating detail of all of this, not that I'm pr necessarily promoting it, but this is this part of my journey is 
very well detailed in Wondery's Guru podcast that came out last year and it's called um, Guru, the Dark Side of Enlightenment. So this is treading some of the same ground, but with an even more recent filter than a couple of years ago, which I think is significant. So when I took The Secret Home and popped it into the DVD player, my very first impression was how hokey it was, the beginning of it. I don't Did you ever see it? I half watched it and I've read the book and yeah, I'll, I'll save my, I'll save my thoughts on it. So the, the DVD, you get the DVD cover. It's got this wax sealed stamp on it in red with the branding that we're all probably familiar with by now because it became like the greatest lead magnet of all time. And so I looked at it and it opens up and there's this dramatic woman's voice and these like really hokey like Roman soldiers and everything's a secret. And my initial reaction, which in hindsight would have been really good to pay attention to, was to be quite skeptical and just push away and say, no, what is this? But my friend who loaned it to me, I trusted her and we had so much in common and and I wanted to give it the benefit of the doubt beyond the first few minutes. So I did watch the whole thing and... I'd be lying if I'd claimed in hindsight anything other than it resonated with me. The message was all done up, but pretty simple and outlines the difference between when you're like dark and stormy inside and go around doing dark and stormy things, you're going to get dark and stormy results. And when you're feeling more whole and positive inside yourself and you're going out into the world, the chances are that you will receive more beneficial results. And I don't disagree with that now. I was drawn into it. And there were some other things going on in the background too, because it was right at the time when Oprah was running her, and this was, it was groundbreaking. This is like the, the dawn of the internet. It may have been the, lar- the first and largest scale internet training ever, but she was doing a whole series with Eckhart Tolle on a new earth in that period as well. So For me, I was in that now stereotypical woke moment of realizing I have a little bit more control over my circumstances and my results than I realized. That was very empowering for me and very fruitful. That didn't come just from watching however many minutes of The Secret. That came from doing what I characteristically do, diving in and learning as much as I can. And I do think that's one of the aspects of it that has some merit or some value is it can help people get a little bit of a different perspective on their ability to influence their life, their journey and whatnot. I have a lot of issues about the way it gets presented and and shown, but that concept I think has some real merit. I will add too that the one thing that has always made me uncomfortable about The Secret and really any programs was the almost singular focus on, on money. At the time, my challenges were more in my relationships and I was pushing up on, I think I just turned 40, so single, childless, 40. There's a lot that goes on there for a woman and I was grappling with that, you know, so that was enough for me to want to know more. And I did try to learn more locally. They all go on roadshow and a couple of them were to come through Kelowna which would have been easier, but one of them sold tickets to an event that got canceled and they never refunded the money. And the other was just a creep. So me being persistent, I got online and found what James Ray was doing and 
decided to go to something that was actually happening. And what I'm hearing is you're describing where you were at that point at this kind of pivot point in your, in your life from, uh, you know, the stories we get told about what's supposed to happen at whatever point in our journey. And so it's like, yeah, if you hit 40 and you don't have a kid and you're single, that can trigger a lot of thoughts and a lot of things with uh, what was happening on a career standpoint that even though if you were fine financially, but that the eight was harder work. So it's, it, it's one of these things you're at this point where it's like things are a little bit off and then, oh, here is something that suggests a path or a road to a better place. So it makes perfect sense that you would be one, interested, and two, you and I have have the thing in common, I think, of we don't do stuff halfway. <laughs> so when you get into something, I'm hearing, I'm like, this sounds like me. You get into something and you're like, I'm going to dig super deep into it, which can be very powerful. It can be. It can also get you in a lot of trouble, which is something that we can address. So I'm going to admit to binge watching Lula Rich this week. And if you haven't heard of it yet, it is... It's on Amazon. It's a four-part series. It's about a multi-level marketing company called LuLaRoe. I had no idea. But now that I'm looking into all of the sort of indoctrination topics, this popped up. And so I watched it in equal parts horror, frustration. And now, speaking of myself, like the women who were these retailers for LuLaRoe, it's very easy to kind of look at them with in a critical way. And there's lots of that. And, and within the documentary, there is lots of critique of sort of the American white mom culture and how Luro came in and leveraged that against them. But as I'm hearing myself discuss where I was at in the, that, those ages and stages, there are a lot of expectations on people. And there's a lot of expectations on women, I'm going to say for the context of this conversation in particular. So you look at me at 30, roommates getting married, left, right and center, getting laid off from teachings. I had wanted to have a family, a marriage and children. And it was egregious to me that it wasn't working out that way. So what happened is I ended up on antidepressants. At 40, still no marriage, still no children way more freedom in my life as a result of a decade of moderately successful business and not having much in the way of financial commitment or responsibility. And still, though, a ton of pressure heightened by the recession. And now you look at something like LuLaRoe, just as an immediate example, or even now in my 50s, there are still a lot of expectations. Now, of course, they're more related around aging. But I have a very different point of view on my life and on how I navigate things forward, even though in many ways there's less certainty right now than there has been at any point in the past. So I just want to have a little bit of compassion for people. You know, as I was watching, I'm like, oh, you know, look at look at what's happening to the moms. And I was never one of the moms. Right. So it's easy for me to go there. Although I will say, having lived through what I've lived through, I'm so much more compassionate and empathetic as a result. So there was no nasty judgment. It was just watching this nightmare unfold. And I think we need to cut people some slack who get involved in situations that leverage the things that we've ultimately all been indoctrinated that we should be doing by certain time, date, circumstance. I think that's such an important point. I'm glad that you've brought this up because it really gives us a point to bring into the conversation the aspect of how people who are victimized by these sorts of things, whether it's 
LuLaRoe, whether it's James Arthur Ray, it doesn't matter so much even the who, but so often society portrays and paints the victims in certain ways. But I think all of this really highlights that we are set up by our society in some ways for this. If you don't follow the right path, you know, I don't know what authority came up with this, but it's you. Like, what the heck objectively is wrong with being single and childless at 40? There's nothing objectively wrong with it, but societally, right, it conveys all these messages about failure and blah, 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 blah. And when you put that weight on somebody, it affects how they see things. It affects what they look for. It affects what they're drawn to. I don't think that gets nearly enough attention in talking about these things. I think you've provided an opportunity to segue into the darker side of the secret right here, because I agree with what you've said about the societal expectations. And I think it's important as both of us, like white 50 something people in North America to realize that every once in a while, like, and by that, I mean, always, we have to now gear ourselves to look beyond that. That was always true. But the North American experience of self-help is pretty steeped in privilege. And that's a recent revelation for me. It's not easy to have a whole pile of empathy for a bunch of basically white people out in the middle of the desert, spending thousands and thousands of dollars who end up in a sweat lodge. I think there's been a lot of judgment, maybe not consciously on that level, but easy to judge us as stupid and unlike people. But going back to the secret and the society, underlying all of that is pervasive shame. If you are not where you should be doing what you should be making as much money as you should be, our society shames that. And the secret and the law of attraction does that too. Because there's absolutely no guarantee. And there is obviously the gap between thinking the, the good thoughts and what ultimately it's, it's pop psychology wrapped up in marketing is, is how I see the secret now. I think there's, there's some value to it to a point. But what about the person who does all the right things, thinks all the right thoughts, and of course they're judged as thoughts because they're positive and they're future oriented, but then the results don't come. And it is so easy, especially those of us who are prone to shame, to turn the mirror around ourselves and say, well, then there must be something wrong with me. Which is what feeds a cycle, which I'm going to come back to in a second. I want to make a couple other notes here, though. One of the things about the secret, and I saw this from the very beginning, and it's really only gotten reinforced over time, is how much it minimizes not just the inevitable struggles, difficulties, and failures, but even just the action. One could come away from reading that book or watching that movie with the idea that if I just think positive thoughts, my life is magically going to transform itself, which is like garbage, but it is aligned with how we like to seemingly as a society look at things and present things. If you go on Instagram, and we talked about this last week when you were interviewing me, like, all of these people, everyone looks perfect and happy and they're never having difficulty and you're not seeing any of the hard work with a lot of them. And it's like, it, you get this implication that if you just have the right mindset and attitude and uh, take some pretty pictures of, you know, of you holding a coffee cup the right way, that you're going to be a millionaire. And it's like, you and I know that's not true, but, but people who don't really get that's like a bunch of garbage can very easily go, why am I struggling? Why am I falling down? Why am I having to do all of this or just not even seeing? what the work piece of it is. And so it's such a setup 
because then it leads to this idea of, well, you're just not thinking positively enough, or you just haven't taken the right workshop, or you just don't know the right technique or the right tool. You're doing it wrong. Right. You're doing it wrong. And this is absolutely, from a psychological standpoint, this is basically an abusive dependency cycle. It looks different than, say, what might happen in domestic violence in a relationship, but that's only the specifics. Conceptually, it's the same dynamic. My mind is split on where to pick up from there because also I want to, at the risk of, um, of validating James Arthur Ray from the first moment or hour of the first workshop, it was all action. And the secret was this thing that he was in. And it was a very action-oriented approach, which resonated with me because I was in my action-oriented business and in an environment that benefited from that kind of additional psychological or emotional high or sense of connection to a higher purpose, connection to a community, all the things that, that we're hardwired for that help to pull us up out of some of those shaming aspects. So I think that a lot of people and a lot of people who I know who do the self-help thing very well and do the coaching very well, and even I've been coached for many years and just taken myself out of it recently, where there are good people doing good work in the field, but in the time that I stepped away, I, and even this last 10 years, now that I'm more tuned in to who some of these other sort of B-list leaders are, because, you know, the A-list, they're all getting ready to, they should retire, they won't, but they're like untouchables. I won't even name them, but they've been established for a very long time. And then there's all these like mid-level male and female figures in the self-help industry. And I look at that and I'm just like, holy shit. It could have been so different. And that's where I think that a whole different aspects of our culture that are very unhealthy and very toxic took over, still driven around the money, but like the law of attraction, which is basically a self-fulfilling prophecy, if we want to put it in psychological terms. It's not harmful to understand what a self-fulfilling prophecy is and how to apply that in your life and just to cut out some of the negative ones and, and cultivate some of the positive ones. There's nothing wrong with that. But absolute magical thinking is stunting intellectually, emotionally, psychologically, on spiritually. It is stunting to people. And I think that's a, a large part of what we've got today is there are large segments of the self-help consumer population whose awareness has been stunted because of the quality of the leadership that has been offered to them. I think another piece of this is a byproduct of the ever-increasing speed and shallowness of our society. Everything's bullet points. There's no depth. And I think that leads to people putting, including some of these folks who, you know, in, in the self-help industry or in really any industry who really know their stuff and are knowledgeable and skilled, but they put the information out in line with how these platforms work now in a way that is so superficial and shallow that it is actually not very usable in that form. Yeah, I think the rapacious nature of sell them what they want, give them what they need, or give them what you think they need, because they have no idea what they need. Who out there is do it, taking the hours to do the full psychological workup and magnifying glass look on the processes of the business. And that's not what the self-help industry is. <laughs> you know, it's the self-help 
industry is more like going to a spiritual church to get boosted to go back and do what you were doing or, or change things in a way. And I might be being harsh, but that's just where I'm at. And all these years later, that's a developing point of view. It's not one that has come from the rotten things that happened to me. It's one that since really taking the podcast on this direction of looking at indoctrination and seeing myself in the mirror as maybe, just maybe, if in those years when I was really involved with James Ray and that I have many good friends still in that community that I've kept relationships with. But if I put myself back in that time with all the like good vibes and all the fun and all the adventure, and if at that time the person who was steering that ship had been introducing thoughts like the ones I see now, there's a chance I would have gone there. I would have gone there from this perspective of I've become more conscious. I am questioning the medical establishment. I am questioning the political leadership, all things that need to be questioned. But I think when I somehow in this warpy way saw all the parallels between that situation and mine, it woke me up to the fact that although I have been pushing it off for years, I have refused to acknowledge any level of indoctrination happening. And then I went and did what I always do. I started to learn about indoctrination. I read, I, I reached out to Dr. Yanya Lalich. I read her book. I got into her first workshop. And even now describing it, I can imagine the look on my face because it, that is so new and Part of me has already flashed forward to every single person who is anti-vaccination now, who wakes up to their complicity in other people's deaths or the prolonging of the pandemic, depending on whether they are money-oriented or people-oriented. They're in for a world of hurt that I understand very well because I've lived that world of hurt without the label on it of someone who was in a very compromised position because of the circumstances they found them. Like, that was me. Now, often for people, when they have this sort of insight, it often is offered to them or shown to them in some way. And in your case, it might be this awareness of, oh, yes, I did experience indoctrination. That can be a very uncomfortable space for people. Right? They don't always respond in a very receptive fashion. So I'm curious about your experience of that and what you went through from an emotional and psychological standpoint as you were there. I decided a long time ago that I would not get involved in any kind of lawsuits or any kind of thing to, that would potentially zip my mouth shut in the future. That was just me. That wouldn't have been cool for me. Even in the worst of times, I was like, yeah, there's no dollar sign for my mouth or for my independent thought. So there's that. And then all these years, and I have to give a credit where credit is due, the mother of Kirby Brown. Ginny Brown and her husband, George, and their daughter, Jean, have been relentless with their organization, Seek Safely. And when I decided in 2015 that, okay, I'll be in the documentary, Enlighten Us. And then a few years later, in late 2019, when I was approached for two projects, one was The Unexplained and one was The Wondery Podcast that I referred to earlier. And I try to vet the projects as best as I can. And every one of them has come with its own baggage. 
I always knew that I would speak when the time was was right. That was one thing. But Ginny, George, Jean, and Seek Safely, Ginny is a, a licensed therapist. She knows her stuff. I don't think, though, that she has ever come out and said they were indoctrinated. She would talk about all of the things that add up to indoctrination. And I would sit there still with my goggles on going, well, it's not really like that. It's not really like that. And it's not exactly like that. And it wasn't exactly like that. And keep that distance from the deeper levels of understanding this. So put that together with my willingness to get in front of a a microphone or a camera and then constantly being put into the cult category when I do. And then last year when I listened to myself in the panel episode of the Guru Dark Side of Enlightenment, I heard, I think one of the skills that I've developed over the years is I can be an observer of myself. And it's pretty easy to be an observer of yourself when you're listening to yourself. And I heard myself protesting too much. Always a good clue. Yeah. And I had always justified the protesting. And I think there's some validity to it, especially in all these past years when nobody wanted to talk about cults and cult dynamics and indoctrination. I felt that by letting it be labeled, this was cult or culty, that it was preventing people from taking it seriously, which was true. And it was preventing people from generalizing it to where these dynamics show up all the time in the self-help industry which is also true. And I think it was very convenient for people who could have really picked up on how drastically, horribly, terribly wrong things could go to create an industry of professionals that was regulated and that had some form of ethics. And this is all very much in the works. Like lately, I've been thinking, gosh, I've always thought to have Ginny on here, but I haven't really known what conversation to have with her. I think I do now. I was going to say, if you don't, I've got some ideas for you. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it just wasn't the time yet and that some other things needed to happen first to get it there. And that maybe now it is. I don't know. I think those things are happening now. These are topics that I've addressed for years on the podcast. There wasn't a sizable audience for it. All this time later, we have a globe that has gone through basically narcissistic abuse in the last few years, and there's more receptiveness to the topic. And it's becoming more common in certain circles to talk about these things. And you can't deny if you're in this in this space, you can't deny the effect of Nexium and Keith Rainier's sentencing and everything else. Like It has become very topical, current and relatable. The increased awareness of it, I think, is good because it helps it to get a greater degree of attention, uh, a greater degree of uh, willingness for people to understand this and, and to look into this and everything. There's been a lot that's been written, documentary, podcast, all this that's been done in exploring what happened in Sedona, in that sweat lodge. But I found myself, after reading all that, really feeling that there was a hole in what was explored and talked about. And I think it's actually a really important one. And that's what the experience is of somebody who's not just going through that, but getting led up to the point of being involved there. And there's been certain things that have been talked about, like the shaving your head and all of that, but really very little about your own internal experience. And that's something I think both I'm selfishly very curious about, but I think also so important for helping others who are somewhere along a similar path, be able to see themselves Mm. and to recognize, oh, wait, this is not good. 
So I'm wondering if we can you know, use this as a jumping point to go back to you going to sure. a seminar with James and then how things evolved from there. There's a, a lot of layers to this, the experience. The most superficial was, and yet not the most meaningless, was going, I was able to dovetail taking these weeks to, to travel to these workshops with a very decent amount of photography. That was part of my MO. I wanted to get back to San Francisco, particularly to photograph the Palace of Fine Arts because I'd been there before I had a really good camera. That kind of thinking, I was always like, oh, what can I do? How can I tag extra days? And it was me because I used to work all the time. And so that was me building in, again, this lifestyle that I was wanting and the idea of selling the prints that, that I took. And, and so there was that level of it. Then there was going and I was living in a small city in the interior of BC and I was a, a woman from Toronto. So there were other people from other larger cities there. And I was a bit of an outlier to be a you know a single woman in, in my late 30s, early 40s. That was always been interesting, interesting experience, the assumptions that were made. So meeting other people who were in similar circumstances to me and also on this like seeking or questing or wanting more out of life. That was very stimulating to me. And so James was really good at providing that environment. The events were very high production. They were a lot of fun, very high energy. And so when you're immersed in an environment like that, the last thing that you're thinking is that it could be potentially harmful in any way. The last thing. And in that kind of way, it could be considered a slow build all the way up to what happened at Spiritual Warrior because, you know, over, over time, you become accustomed to trusting the experience, trusting the investment, trusting the people around you. So the hindsight on this comes from a few things that were happening to me as I was, I was getting involved in his organization as a coach and then as a, a speaker. And one of the hindsight were that a lot of people who had been around since before he became Oprah famous, they were leaving. And for me, because I had just come in, I didn't have long lasting relationships with them. And so it was easy for me to come to a conclusion, whether it was suggested or otherwise, that they were leaving because they didn't, you know, they didn't like the larger scale or they were accustomed to getting more of his time versus a team of coaches, or they were done. The idea should be, you should finish the journey at some point. But there were a lot of people who were leaving. I received a warning phone call from one of them at one point as I was getting involved professionally. And again, it was very, I couldn't see it. So I put my happy goggles on and I ignored. And so. So I, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm curious about this. You got a warning call that you ignored. Can you give a little bit more insight into you know what that was and what led to you deciding to to be dismissive of it? From what I remember of the call, it was somebody who I didn't know well, and he was cautioning me that things weren't all what they appeared to be, and that that I should maybe give a second thought to getting involved as a speaker. And I had no sense of appreciation of the courage that it would have taken to make that call <laughs> at that time because. Again, I was referring primarily to my own experience, which leads me to a huge red flag. And that is just because you're benefiting personally doesn't mean that there's not something unhealthy going on. So for many, many years, I would shame myself saying should have, would have, could have. And as all the revelations subsequent to the sweat lodge that are 
detailed in um, the Guru podcast. I, every time I would hear one of those, I would feel like, oh, I should have known. I should have known because so-and-so called me. I should have known because all those people left. I should have known because I saw some strange behavior that I couldn't quite reconcile. And the list goes on and on. But the bottom lines for this to be anything other than you just like entertainment is this is why becoming educated on the red flags is so important because once you've had one of these experiences, you can smell them coming a mile away once you've recovered and learned. There's a, certainly an interim period where you can't, you're still blind to it. But once there's been actual healing, actual therapy, actual integrating, and an actual shift in your perception. And this is why I think people who work in this field have to always remember that the very people that we're trying to reach they are more similar to the former versions of us, the ones who trust it, who just can't see that something is awry or could go awry. And could go awry is enough. It needs to be enough. But just like someone who's parented a teenager, which despite never giving birth to a child, I did get to raise a, a teenager. There's only so much that you can do or say about your own experience People have to learn for themselves and that's what makes it so freaking painful. I think a level of consciousness that would be healthy for people would be like when we eventually open back up, but also when we're at our screens and going to these large group activities or large group gatherings is learning to recognize when you're getting swept up in the feelings of the environment, which are not really your feelings. <laughs> right? So much of the leverage on these scenarios is what everyone else is doing, which sounds very teenager. People think of that as like a teenager thing, but that's because teenagers from a like brain development standpoint, they're mostly amygdala. They don't have much of a prefrontal cortex yet. So that makes them much more subject to being impulsive, to being swept away in their feelings because they have less ability to bring the critical thinking into play literally from a physiological standpoint. It's like the reason kids are impulsive sometimes is not because they're stupid. It's because their brain is still being grown. <laughs> That's why they need parents up to a point. But in this kind of a situation, that can be overridden. It is almost impossible to overstate how powerful the emotional brain can be and how powerful the amygdala is, which is great from a survival standpoint, but it also creates this real vulnerability. And that can be taken advantage of when you generate enough energy in a situation, especially if it's towards the right people, meaning people who are maybe more attuned to that sort of information and people who are in the right situation, meaning people who are maybe feeling a lack or an emptiness. And so you feed that it's again, it's that thing of you haven't eaten for a week and then it's all you can eat buffet. And it's like, it's a little bit of a perfect storm that sets you up to end up in not a very good place after the fact. Yeah, and that's, I think, why when there's people who are trying to educate about the, the unhealthy dynamics and also I think people should become savvy in, in marketing, in the elements of marketing and being able to go to an event and even to use myself as an example, I have a community associated to this podcast that is launching and it's deliberately built not to manipulate, but to create a sense of community and there's value in community. In this case, it's not designed as a funnel to any other event or any other service. The value is in the community itself. But a more typical 
situation is communities, group programs are used as a funnel towards higher ticket items. So when you're entering into these dynamics, to be able to sit back and and take in what is happening and assess and discern whether or not this is even the, in the right wheelhouse for you, that's one thing, or if it addresses an actual need, but also to be able to sit back and go, oh yeah, look, she, he, or they are, right, see that? They're, put, they're using the community lever. They're using the fast money lever. They're using the, I've got the answer. I've got the secret lever. You can start to see these tools of manipulation that are quite insidious when you start thinking about and learning about the motivation of fear of missing out. So on one hand, come and be a part of an active moderated community, but don't think like your life is going to suck if you don't. Definitely not that your life is going to suck. And it's, I'm thinking there's a bunch of different things going on in my head related to this because it's the same thing. It's one thing if you do something because you you believe it's absolutely going to get you something. It's another thing if it's a possibility, like joining even a community. Somebody could promise something out of that that would be unrealistic but desirable and pull people in that way versus it's just, it's a possibility. It is a possibility. It's a space where you have the opportunity to connect with certain types of people and that kind of a thing. And I think that's an important thing in, in how we're assessing like what's being offered here and how is it being presented from a certainty uncertainty thing and how is it being presented from a what you have to do piece. Because there's a common thread here in both, I'll say the good and bad side of this. It keeps kind of popping up for me here as we're talking. And it's this gradual buildup of things, whether it's in a marketing sense, it's the old funnel idea. If we were to look at it in the realm of psychology and mental health, one of the places where we see this on the negative side, most distressingly is in the realm of sexual abuse, where they talk about the concept of grooming, which is a gradual erosion of physical, emotional, and other boundaries. And it's done in this very gradual, subtle way, step by step. It can happen without even you noticing it really until Mm -hmm. you get to a point where then you feel like you you've somehow bought into it even though you haven't so in those ways that gradual stepping can be harmful but at the same time in building a healthy relationship the way we build a healthy relationship is actually through a gradual shifting of boundaries and a gradual building of trust that's the thing is it's not inherently bad it's how it's used like so many tools yeah we're dependent on the ethics of and values and motivations of the people or organizations behind them and that we can never truly know it becomes hard for them to push it past a certain point without showing their hand that's i think the thing here right now to to bring this back to your experience and to talk about building up to to spiritual warrior you know you had seen some things that were like, okay, some people leaving this warning call and all of that. But in the buildup to that event, were you having doubts about attending and participating in it? Or where were you as it relates to James and, you know, and all of this at that point in time? I was really excited to go back to Sedona for all the same reasons that I've repeated (laughs) about the other locations. I'd been there in 2001, not too long after 9-11 and had a wonderful experience there. That was a big draw for me. The smaller um, group was a big draw and 
I think I had a decent idea of how rustic the accommodations would be. And and that wasn't a deterrent for me. I just like I can go city or middle of nowhere, I can do five-star hotel or sleep on the ground. Like it doesn't matter to me or it's not a deterrent to me that it wasn't posh. So I I was very happy to be there. I was also tired. It had been a really eventful 18, 20 months with a lot of travel. At the time, I had just sold my house that I was living in to right-size myself into a, a townhome condo with less maintenance. And I had had some tenants in the basement of my house that were very disruptive. And I was trying to keep all the balls in the air of all of my consulting clients. I think I was serving nine or 10 dealerships, which is a lot of people at at that time, driving back and forth between Kelowna and Vancouver. And I had a wonderfully demanding dog who was like a working breed. So there was a lot. And so I saw Spiritual Warrior as a bit of a finish line in terms of it was the pinnacle event. I had done all the other ones. And there would be the periodic recurring events or I would have thought of them more as workshops in that time versus events. So I was getting ready to wrap it up and move on. And early in the week, I very much saw continuing being a speaker in the organization he was building as part of what I would do because I wanted to wean off of the automotive when the time was right. I think when I got there and as it's, famously described in the Guru podcast, I wasn't all that tuned in to, I didn't know in advance that there was, that shaving your head was going to be on offer as a a breakthrough experience. I didn't know there was a sweat lodge. I never did any research and I bought into that. Don't talk about what's going on there because people should have their own experience, which is another red flag. (laughs) Thank you. I, I'm like, I'm like, are you going to say it or am I? I need to get a red flag. <laughs> right. We do, totally should. Because yeah, secrecy, we, big flag. Yeah. And yet it seems so benign. Like, why wouldn't I just want to go and have the experience as it's designed for me without knowing everything in advance? Like, I'm like, why wouldn't I? How would that have been a red flag at the time? And that's the thing. It's a red flag. And yet most of these things that are red flags have an ambiguity about them, right? It's not like you're going to show up and we're going to torture you and beat you and put you in the hospital. Like no one would sign up for that because that's not ambiguously a red flag. That is just, that's not okay. These sorts of things have an ambiguity. It could be this, it could be that, it could. And that's exactly one of the points here where how is the possibility and risk aspect how is that addressed and how are questions about that addressed, I think is a key area that we have to watch for in assessing someone's ethics. And I'm sure you've had this with coaching clients. I have with both coaching and therapy clients, people wondering like, you know, how will we know it's going to work? Is it going to work? All that. I always tell people like, I can't guarantee you anything except I can promise you how I'm going to engage with you and what I'm going to try and do and what I'm going to say and not say, but I can't promise a result. I only have one piece of this anyway. I'm going to rebut that just a little bit for the sake of the discussion call it being a devil's advocate, right? Like nobody wants to build. Okay. And this has been one of my, my greatest challenges in building a coaching practice over the years has been that I refuse to engage in any of those tactics because it makes me feel terrible to do them. And I think people are, and you know, we're talking about now 
seven, eight years ago. I think people are, are, I hope are wiser now for a number of different reasons. But what seems to sell and what seems to build viable businesses is the oversimplified selling. I think it sells more easily. I think it sells more easily. I I would say that. And it's a, it's a route a lot of people go. And I think this is a spot where a lot of people go the route of what is quicker, what is easier. It is also, if you are somebody who is selling marketing to coaches or whoever, it's a way easier thing to package and sell to them. Oh, it's endemic and they're taught how to do it and they don't realize how And this. And this is like for the longest time, I took the stance that I'm going to change it or have some kind of impact from within. And I don't have the time or the energy for that anymore, quite frankly. Like it's just, it has become an excruciating endeavor. So that's why nobody really needs a coach who views the business that they're working in as an excruciating endeavor, like that red flag. But so that's why I'm, I've extricated myself because for me, where the, where this phase is, And I think this is another huge red flag that has been thrown up in my face this past year. My self-help journey, well-intentioned, totally took me away from my photography journey. That's nobody's responsibility but my own. Nobody ever said, Laura Tucker, you're going to, I'm going to make you so busy. I did it to myself. But the attraction of, you know, this is more over on the business side of the freedom of the coaching business model. And it was freedom compared to going to a a dealership for eight hours every day, X number of days a month. That wasn't BS. That was true freedom in a sense. But the whole thing can be packaged up and oversimplified. And I think that if I were to put feelers out, so everyone, I'm putting feelers out, I would like to get a gauge on how many exhausted, burned out, struggling, traumatized coaches there are out there who listening to all this are going, oh my gosh, that's me. Because I think that coaching is so important and I'm not saying anything I hope that discourages you because of your transition from therapy towards coaching, there are so many reasons to do that. I'm aware of so many therapists that have become um, certified coaches. And even as I'm looking at what am I really doing now, thought about how can I run my coaching business more like a professional therapeutic practice? There's ways to do that, right? Without all these like lengthy commitments or overblown rates, or there's so many ways to build a business model that is healthy. But for me right now, when I had my blinders come off over the course of this past year, I saw that really where I'm meant to be right now is in my podcast and behind a camera and writing. And if I have to monetize that in other ways, then that's what it's going to be. There's a few things here. One, what you were saying, getting away from your photography. That is another, again, clue. As long as we're talking about red flags. Yeah, you can say, well, I allowed that to happen. At the same time, Anyone who is in the business, this is my take on this, who's in the business of helping you grow, if they don't take the time to understand who you are, what makes you tick and what fires you up, and then find ways to help you engage that more in your life, they're at best not doing their job. And at worst, they've got their own agenda and that's its own clue. Because I can tell you this, if you had been a client of mine, and I knew the photography was important, we'd be spending a lot of time talking about how do you fit that into your life? Is that something you want to make a bigger part of your life? Where does that belong? 
because clearly anyone who talks that, to you. But Steve, that's not possible in the large group. So that conversation doesn't happen in the larger group format. And I never deliberately put down the camera. It's something that happened as more and more of my time became involved. And I think it's also important to work into the equation here to function as a red flag. Like when somebody goes for therapy, the therapist doesn't, I hope, ever try to get you working underneath them in their therapy organization so that you can become a source of income in their downline. But in coaching, and that's this is what I experienced, is I went to be served and I end up becoming part of the service willingly, enthusiastically. But now with all of this hindsight, the thing that would have been more appropriate and healthier, like you said, would have been, and it's all there in my notes, I did the excavation, but whether it was bright, shiny object or as someone who was single and needing to support myself, I, I took the consulting into coaching and it should have been a red flag all along because of all of the benefits that photography provides for me. It should have always been there alongside it. So I share that now so that people who are finding that they're being drawn into something and they start leaving behind aspects of themselves that are really your true self, if you can't find a way to, to bring it along or really go back to the drawing board, as so many of us have been forced to, and really see what is me, what is mine. And it's absolutely okay. Like the things that are you and yours do have value in this world. It doesn't have to fall within someone else's business or practice or idea of business. Oh, absolutely. And I would say anybody in your inner circle who does not support, celebrate, and when it makes sense or they have an opportunity, actively seek to help you grow that thing as a part of your world is someone you want to be cautious about. Yeah, totally. One of the ways we can evaluate a life romantic partner is do they help us be a better version of ourselves and a more like fully expressed version of ourselves? Not that that's their job. It's a byproduct of a healthy relationship. And I would say that's, I think, what people who are in really any kind of, I'll say, uh, service position seeking to help others improve is about helping that person become a better version of themselves, maybe in a small way, maybe in a more comprehensive way. And when you look at, you know, things that get away from that or cause people to give that up, it's a huge, huge sort of flag. And yet, you know, it's interesting. I'm reflecting on, on a couple of client relationships that I had. And there were times where I wanted, and it's so dicey as a coach, right? Like you're not supposed to give pronouncements and opinions and steer. And I wanted to suggest to them that the business that they were flogging themselves with didn't really seem to be a fit and had the conversation. But when someone's convinced that it's the right thing for them, as I was at that stage, it's really, I, I, I think things still ha just have to play out. And yes, there's a respect, <laughs> there's a respecting and honoring someone's journey at a point for sure. When we start talking about trying to manipulate someone's journey versus supporting it, and this is all gets very gray and fuzzy. Speaking to one thing you had mentioned, I mean, in the realm of therapy, because so many people who seek 
therapy are doing so from a place of a lot of emotional and psychological damage or problems there, there are a lot of very explicit boundaries and limitations. Like mm. the idea, like it would be, it, it's explicitly illegal for a therapist, for example, to hire a client to do anything or to have any kind of, that would be an example of what we would call a prohibited dual relationship. One of the issues a lot of people have with the world of coaching is how unregulated it is yeah. because it really allows for that. And at the same time, what else? I'll say this. I've seen plenty of therapists do really inappropriate and problematic things and get away with it for a while, despite all the regulation. And it's not that the regulations per se are bad. It's the idea that that's the answer is, I think, the problem. It's only a part of things. I think there's a bigger piece about it. That's how we, as a society, become more educated about unhealthy and healthy relationship interactions and teach people to spot that and empower people to speak up. And when people do, instead of attacking them, we listen to them yeah. and we help support them. I think that's where it really becomes important is that we listen when people speak up because something happened to them instead of focusing on the idea of like, well, if you weren't such a victim, you wouldn't have been a victim. And, and the whole victim blaming in whatever form. Becoming very obvious to me as I listen to myself, like I'm still a work in process. I have learned so much from this journey and I'm excited that it seems like it's relevant. No one wants to be irrelevant <laughs> or that it has value in terms of what would I wish for somebody listening today? And what I would wish for somebody listening today is that they hear me still excavating and still healing all these years later and that it's worth doing. You know, it's not, I'm not recommending people do it in public. Fortunately, not everyone is, is in a public journey like the one that, that I've been in, but also I'm getting a real sense of how important it is for us to pick up the lost pieces of ourselves. Post sweat lodge, a lot of this leaving photography behind happened in the trauma after the sweat lodge, not because I was part of such and such business, but I was also very adamant that I, in my belief in the benefit of coaching and a personal growth journey and more and more what I see evolving as my role alongside bringing photography back in, which I'm doing on my blog that needs to be resurrected because free your inner guru is taking a lot of time and bandwidth of late, but we don't have the answers. None of us have the answers up front. So the more that we can know ourselves, the more that we can become self-aware, the more that we can be open and receptive to others and the wisdom of others is where we can really grow. And that's that's why I started this podcast because I wanted to engage in more nuanced conversations because I had been spit out of the mill called, you know, the Enlightenness documentary and at the end of 2016. And it was like, ah, so much was in there that didn't make it into the movie. And I started the podcast to fill that gaping hole. And so you can even see how life just continues to be an ever-evolving journey and recovering pieces of myself. And that should be a joyful thing. It is a joyful thing, even though there's some really heavy topics, right? 
healthy relationships, toxic relationships, indoctrination, trauma, tremendous loss and tremendous pain. And so I think we're coming full circle on, you know, this is a moment to be sharing about this while the self-help world is still pretty much on pause. And I would love to be a part of making for a more educated consumer because I don't see any sign of there being any form of regulation or professional standards or accountability. And whenever something starts to make a lot of money, it attracts the full spectrum of people, including bad actors, including, including sociopaths. And I think we see that play out today in COVID-19. And I don't think there's any more important topic, to be honest, because it's impacting us all around the globe. And that's why I think conversations like this are so important and valuable. And it's something that really, I, I hope, will happen more and more so people can understand how to look at what's there because things will slip through, whether it's there's a field that's unregulated, but even in a place that is regulated, there's bad actors in any place and there are good ones. And learning how to better assess who's who, I think is a critical thing. There's a lot of work that can be done by really anyone who cares about this and helping others to see better, to be more educated so they can make uh, more informed decisions about who they do and don't trust. Yeah, yeah. Because when it's you and, uh, and that person in a doctor's office, in a therapist's office, yeah, in a sweat lodge, there's no regulation police that are going to come in and, and rescue you. You're in it and we, we need to know what the healthy boundaries are, what the red flags are, and, and when it's time to have the, the strength to speak up and best case scenario, extricate yourself, or at least this might not be the best place to end on. But I think one of the things that, even though it's been a tremendously difficult journey, I did speak up. I did use my voice. I did have the sense that something was wrong. And as convoluted as the whole thing was, I wouldn't like to think about what it would have been to survive a parallel situation where I kept my mouth shut. You know, I, I did what I could with very limited resources at the time to zero net effect, but I have that and I have, that is the moment and the lesson of free your inner guru. And, and as much as it didn't change any outcomes in the outer world, it has helped me in my long recovery to know that was a moment when I was being truly me. Sometimes the effects of our actions are uh, more, more subtle than we might think they are, or they don't occur in the timeline or in the space where we think they will. And I think this might be a, a case of that, but I think it's good that you recognize that it still was important that you did speak up. And continue to speak up. <laughs> And we'll absolutely continue to speak up. So obviously here we are on your podcast. And so to some degree, anybody listening knows where to find you because here they are listening to your podcast. But where else for people who are like, okay, I want to learn more about Laura and see more of what you're up to because you're not just a podcaster. You know, as you said, this, the photography thing is something that's really coming back for you and you've been writing. So tell us where are the other places where people can find you and, and what else you were doing and your, and your work? Internet? Sure. Thank you for asking. So I have two online homes or hubs. The, the one that people listening to the podcast might be more familiar with is freeyourinnerguru.com. 
That's where the podcast is hosted. That's where the, the community around it is accessible. And I've started adding some written pieces to that website very recently with the article rebutting the line about those people in that sweat lodge uh, in the show Nine Perfect Strangers. So that's that side of things. As far as the creative side, lauratucker.com has been around for a very long time. And right now it is all photography and my writing. That is part of what I created during the pandemic to to create that equal space for both. And, And then on social media, the place that I'm most active is on Instagram. Uh, under Laura Tucker or that Laura Tucker and free or inner guru. And that's ever evolving. And you can access my photography gallery, which has a number of images from around the world is accessed at lauratucker.com or directly at lauratuckerphotography.com. So that's a lot I recognize, but, but I'm very happy with that, bringing it all forward. Good. Cause that's you. You're a, high energy person who's interested in a lot of things and pursuing a lot of stuff. I will put in a note to encourage everyone to check out um, really all of these things. So Laura, I want to say thank you on two levels. One, thank you for being willing to play along with this experiment with me. It's been a whole lot of fun to be on both sides of it, but really in, in a bigger way, thank you for what you're doing, because this is, I think, just really important work. There are a lot of people who get harmed by others taking advantage of them. And so I think what you're doing and bringing more awareness and attention to how this happens, to what it looks like, to stories of people who have um, dealt with it, learned from it, and all of that is, it's just something really important in the world. And it's giving, you know, kind of a force for good in a world that sometimes feels like kind of a dark and ugly space. So uh, thank you for that. Please keep doing what you're doing. And I think you're going in such a good and powerful direction right now. So um, just together a vote of encouragement and support to say, keep doing that because I really think it's important and valuable work. Thank you so much. It takes me back a little bit in my seat. Hearing thank you for your work is new to me. I've heard it a few times recently. It feels like it could bring a tear to my eye because... There's a lot of content to explore and discover. One of the hardest things when you're on a project or in a business endeavor is staying in it for the long haul. And I'm really happy to still be here in so many ways to see some of the work having even a small impact means so much to me and and it encourages me to keep going. So thank you for that. I look forward to seeing what you're going to be doing next. Thanks, Steve.